all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Sarah Serling, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at UMC, and for Dr. Jasmine Kinsey today. Today, we're going to be talking about gynecological cancers, and we'll be joined by Dr. Christy Haygood, um, a, a gynecologic oncologist at St. Dominic's and UMMC. She's also a clinical educator at UMMC. We'll be talking about this, signs, symptoms, um, and when you need to, to know to go get checked out by your doctor. Doctor, thanks for filling in for us today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's been a long time. Can you remember the last, it, 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 we were trying to find the date, and I don't have it in front of me. Do you remember the last time that it, you were here? It's definitely been pre-COVID, so it's been a little while since Absolutely. I've been here, but I'm happy mm-hmm. to be back. I was not expecting that there would be you know, snakes and alligators in the studio <laughs> before I got here. but Just moments. Just in case I had any nerves to uh-huh. shake out we we got to see a few little snakes and alligators right snakes and alligators and now dr sarah (laughs) that's right so before we bring our our guest in tell folks a little bit about you know what you do and and uh, a little bit how about you found yourself at the radio station this morning to talk about women's health that's right so i'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at umc um so i see all sorts of problems for men and women of all ages um but happy to be on today to talk about women's health uh, specifically so um lucky to be joined by an expert in uh women's health a gynecologist um who specializes in gynecologic cancer so um excited to have her expertise here today and to talk to you more um out of you listeners out there about uh women's health issues from uh, whatever is on your mind today. All right. So without further ado, let's get in and let's bring our guest in this morning and, and get on our topic today. Great. Uh, Dr. Haygood, are you with us today? Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Doing great. Thanks. Happy to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate the call. Um, I have done the show a couple of times before talking about GYN cancers and really um, more on the topic of women's health and how we can establish those healthy routines and how we can learn about our bodies and know what's normal for us and what's not normal for us. And um, Sarah, I know for you, a lot of those times are acute when people have acute problems and the emergency room is a great resource for those immediate things that happen. But uh, a lot of the times, GYN cancers um, are picked up on routine screening. And so having established relationships with your 
family doctor, with your internal medicine doctor, or with your gynecologist, those things are super important for women's health. So, um, you know, I'm happy to share anything or kind of just talk about um, what that routine screening should look like and kind of how we go for there for women of all ages. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Haygood, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what is a gynecologic oncologist and what, what do you do? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm with Christy Walters Haygood. I'm originally from Crystal Springs. I went to Mississippi College, then I went to UMC for medical school. So I've been a Mississippi native my whole life. I did train at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. After medical school, I did seven years of training um, to take care of women with GYN cancer. So that's cancers of the uterus, cervix, tubes, ovaries, the peritoneum included there, vulva, vagina um, also included. So we specialize in surgery, pelvic surgery, and then um, we give chemotherapy too. So we do both sides um, and take care of a fair number of benign patients too, complicated pelvic surgeries, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> I have three children. Um, they are 10, 7, and 4. Um, so we are busy right now, especially. <laughs> I know you understand that too, Dr. Sterling. This time of year, I was, I was, uh, I saw something on the internet and it, it said May Simber is like all the stress and activity of December, but without the twinkling lights and, you know, apple cider. So I was like, that really resonated with me this time of year. I'm sure it does with you too. I have three children as well. So the, all the fun and crazy activities of May and the end of the oh. school year. <clears throat> we're almost there. I think we're all ready for a little summer break. That's right. That's right. Well, Dr. Haggad, if you're, um, I think we've got a caller. Okay. That's right. Our first yeah. caller, let's go to uh, Jane, who is in Clinton. Go Hi. ahead, Jane. What's going on? Hey, uh, I've been hearing a lot about a medication called Monchero. Monchero, I think. Um, it's, uh, it's not for weight loss, but apparently a lot of women I know have taken it and are losing weight like crazy. Uh, I did talk to my OBGYN about it, and who offered to make a prescription for me. And I think the side effects are uh, a pancreatic side effect. But anyway, mm-hmm. I just thought I would ask you about that medication and what, what, your, what, what you think about it as a weight loss med. You know, I really don't know much about that whole category of medications. Of course, we're hearing how um, remarkable they can be for weight loss. But uh, I I think certainly some of the long-term effects was used specifically for weight loss are are kind of uncertain at this time. Um, Dr. Haygood, I don't know if you have any knowledge or expertise in this area. I have, you know, I have a few patients um, who have really struggled with their weight. Um, And as we know, GYN cancers can be associated with obesity. Um, It's more of a hormone issue and kind of some of that feedback that we get abnormally from abnormal fat tissue. Um, And so I have a fair number of patients who have been interested in being on Manjaro, have had some weight loss with Manjaro. I agree with you, Sarah. I think there are things that we don't know yet about the long-term side effects. Certainly some immediate side effects. Most people will have some nausea. Um, that's sort of the way it works is it makes you feel full. And I think um, that they can definitely be a very good tool for people to lose weight. And I think, 
you know, you kind of got to approach it in two ways. Weight loss um, is a long-term goal for most people, or actually should be, um, and then that it's a lifestyle modification. Um, and using the drugs to modify your lifestyle can be a really good tool to use. So maybe not necessarily a uh, lifetime medication, although some people will need it lifetime, um, but using it more as a tool to teach you portion control and not eating when we're not hungry. Um, it can be very useful for that. I think there has been some pretty good reporting of um, some rebound uh, weight gain. Like like you're saying, Christy, I think if not used in conjunction, um, I, I do think that long-term success is going to be pretty limited or at least a little mitigated mm-hmm. by just some of that regain of weight. So um, I, although I wish there was a magic pill, um, I think it's really got to be used in conjunction with something else to be successful long-term. So um, I, I think we'll, we'll hear more and more. I've heard that there's some um, large um, population studies that are that are looking at this issue, Jane. So I think we'll know more about it in time. But, um, I, you know, for right now, I think there's a lot of unknown, but some potential um, benefit as well. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm considering it. So your information is very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Right. All right. So today we're going to be talking about gynecologic cancers. We have Dr. Christy Haygood on with us today, um, a gynecologic oncologist. Um, we're specifically going to be talking about endometrial, cervical, ovarian cancers, signs, symptoms, um, and when you know it's time to see the doctor. So Dr. Haygood, last week, um, Dr. Kinsey and her guest, Dr. Sims, talked about abnormal uterine bleeding. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what abnormal uterine uterine bleeding um, means and when it can be a sign of a gynecologic cancer and something more serious? Yeah, sure. So um, I think this is interesting that you asked me specifically about abnormal uterine bleeding. So most of the time when women think about that, they really are only thinking about their cycles, right? So we think about, okay, you should have a cycle every month. If you're not having a cycle every month, then something is wrong, or if you're bleeding twice a month, then something is wrong. And you kind of get into this pattern where, you know, a lot of women just say, hey, I'm having, I'm having periods, that's normal, even though for them, the period may have gone from five days, and now it's 10 days, now it's 14 days, maybe the cycle has changed from, it used to be 28 days, and now I'm 45 days, or it used to be 20 days, and now I'm 10 days. Um, So any abnormal uterine bleeding, we kind of describe that, use that term for anything that's really not normal for you. Um, Now, women are built to have ovulation once a month, which then triggers, if not pregnant, um, then that triggers the uterus to bleed um, and shed that lining of the inside, the endometrium, shed that endometrial lining, which is a period. And so when that gets out of sorts or gets off timing, those cells are either abnormally dividing or they're not dividing enough, which leads to errors. Errors in DNA lead to cancer. So um, I think it's really important, uh, really, for most women to have an idea of, okay, this is when my cycles typically are, um, and if that changes, that you have someone you can talk to about it. 
um, and that you have somebody that has an established relationship or that you feel comfortable sharing, mm-hmm. hey, Doc, you know, I only have one period every six months. Okay, well, that's not normal, and we need to do some investigating about that. It doesn't mean it's a cancer, but it certainly could put you at risk for cancer. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, so things like, hey, uh, you know, I have intercourse, I have sex with my husband, and then I have bleeding afterwards. Well, that may, that cannot be cancer, but that certainly could be abnormal and something that you'd want to have evaluated. Um, or if you've suddenly started, you know, especially, and I'm in this category, Sarah, you're in this category too, as we get older, the, the eggs in our ovaries start to run out. We're not ovulating as often. Um, and we start to have these irregular cycles that can be heavier, lighter. And so lots of women our age are bleeding 10 to 14 days out of the month. And y'all, that is a lifestyle issue for most people. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, um, yeah. So, I, I mean, really, I don't, I certainly don't want to be bleeding 14 days out of the month. And so, <laughs> There are lots of medications and treatments and things that we can do um, to help that and and so that your lifestyle can be different uh, from progesterone medications to pills you take occasionally to IUDs to surgical treatments. There's lots of different things, but I think the most important thing about bleeding and risk of cancer is that you have it evaluated and that you understand um, if you're not having a period every month and you're not preventing it, then you need to have that evaluated. Or if you're bleeding twice a month or 10 days a month, then you should probably have that evaluated. Great. Lots of wonderful information. And um, Dr. Haygood reminding everybody that I'm getting old. So thank you, Dr. <laughs> Haygood, for that. I did put myself in that category. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. We were just talking about abnormal uterine ble- bleeding, when it can be a sign of, of it being time to see your doctor, um, and other signs or symptoms um, of concern. Um, we'll continue our discussion in just a moment, but it looks like we've got a call um, on the line right now. Yeah, we got Terry in Starkville. Hey, Go ahead, Terry. Terry. What's going on? Hey, doctors. Both of you, thank you so much for taking my call. I, it's just a general question. There's a specific thing called lichen sclerosis. Have either one of you had patients with that condition? Yes. I have too, but I'm, I know Dr. Haygood probably has more experience with this. <laughs> what yes, questions do you have it. about it, Terry? Well, in general, for your callers, um, nobody probably even knows what it is, and your description of it might be a little more clinically um, correct than mine. It's just uh, extremely painful. It feels like um, a searing hot sword, even when you're wiping, um, just to clean up after, you know, using the restroom. Dr. Haygood, would you want to tell us a little bit more about lichen sclerosis and maybe why um, um, those ex- those symptoms are being experienced? Yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, uh, lichen sclerosis is a very it's a benign disease of the skin. Now, it is can be awful, um, hard to manage, um, and it really. You know, I treat a lot of cancers, but I see a fair number of lichen sclerosis patients, and it's 
I usually describe it as an autoimmune condition of that affects the vulva. And so what it does is it starts to erode or destroy. It's almost like your immune system is fighting those cells around your vulva, um, which makes them start to sort of, um, I, 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 not disintegrate, but really they sort of um, shrink and get smaller. We use the word atrophy a lot. Um, and the labia can actually get shortened. You can have pretty significant complications from that shortening of the skin or thickening of the skin. It does kind of make a scaly texture to the skin around the vulva. Um, and you can even have kind of strictures around the urethra. So people who are unable to void, um, which does create, I mean, it's, it's really an inflammatory reaction of the skin. Um, it can be associated with other dermatologic conditions. Um, so people that have psoriasis or eczema can be associated with that, more along those lines of an autoimmune disorder. Um, a lot of the times they're treated with uh, steroid creams. Now, that can take a little bit of time to work through and sort of you have to do high-potency steroids and you try to wean off the steroids. Sometimes people even need systemic um, treatment for lichen sclerosis. Now, typically, they are not associated with a cancer. Um, however, left untreated, that inflammatory reaction to the vulva can lead to a cancer. Um, sometimes we treat these with laser treatments. If there is a cancer there, then we would treat that with resection um, or, or excising that portion of the cancer. Um, occasionally, we use radiation in that setting of a cancer, not typically just with the lichen sclerosis. Most of the time, we manage that with corticosteroid creams or ointment <clears throat> applied to the vulva. And then if we need to transition to something different, there are other sort of um, immune modulators that we can use on the vulva if that's not working. But it is it can be a very terrible discomfort painful disease of the skin there. Well, I just wanted to, to educate people because I felt so alone in the world when yeah. all the pain started happening. And I just wanted people to know that there are other people out there having these issues. And yeah. for young young ladies, um, I'm, I'm almost 60 now. I did not realize that you don't, you don't just use soap and scrub the daylight out of your your delicate lady parts and so you just education of young ladies and ladies in their 20s and 30s you don't just use a very mild soap and there's even a soap called a no soap for the area down there that you know for delicate areas i just wanted to make people aware not to feel like they're alone in the world because it, it affects every aspect of your life when you can't wipe yourself, and of course, you can't have um, normal sexual relations with your partner. Yeah, absolutely. When your vulva feels like it is on fire, then you really don't want to participate in anything. Um, I totally agree with you, and it it is important that we talk about these things. I actually was a little bit more interested in GYN. I've always been interested in women's health, um, but I wanted people to feel comfortable because I think there are a lot of women in your same position, Terry, who are suffering because they don't want to talk about it. Um, and because we, 
you know, as women don't talk about things below the waist. And so there are women right. who are bleeding 14 days out of the month or who feel like their vulva's on fire or who can't have sex with their partner. And there are lots of things that we have that can help that. And so um, I totally agree with you. Let's make people aware, hey, this is a thing. It could be happening. There are treatment options, and we can make your quality of life better. And, and not to give up if your practitioner doesn't kind of flakes you off. And no offense to any practitioner, they're just it's such a secret thing that people just don't talk about it. Even doctors that are in the profession sometimes just say, oh, that's just normal for aging. It's not normal to feel like everything down there is uh, being stabbed by a sword. I think that's a great point, Terry, that, and Dr. Haygood, that we do need, as women, we need to make sure that we're, you know, communicating with each other. Um, but also, um, I think, you know, unfortunately, sometimes every doctor-patient relationship isn't the right fit. And I think that sometimes mm-hmm. if you feel like you're not being heard, it's always important to get a second opinion. Let somebody else see um, what your concern is and and to make sure that you find the right fit. Because I think open and frank communication is is important with our physicians and also with our friends and our family to make sure that we know what's normal and what's not and not to suffer unnecessarily. Correct. And just don't give up. If you you know your body more than anyone, if you know something's wrong, pursue, pursue, pursue. There's a there's an answer out there for you somewhere. Absolutely. Great advice, Terry. Thank you. I appreciate you. y'all. Thank you so much for calling in and good luck to you. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, doctors. So today we're talking about gynecologic cancers and discussing with Dr. Christy Haygood, a gynecologic oncologist. We'll be talking about this and other issues pertinent to women's health. Um, And now I think we've got another caller on the line, um, Ann from Tupelo. Hello. Hi, Ann. Thanks for calling today. Okay. Um, I also sent an email, but I'm not sure if I sent it right, so y'all can ignore my email. (laughs) I'm 61. I had a partial hysterectomy about 12 years ago, but they left my cervix. And about five, year, about five years ago, my gynecologist told me that I no longer needed to get pap smears because I was negative for a test. I think it was called an HP test. And I'm just Correct. kind of concerned. I'm kind of concerned. Is that right that I shouldn't have to get any more pap smears? Right. So that um, can be correct. Now, I won't. I won't say totally correct, a hundred percent, because I don't know your full history. But a lot of women who have never had an abnormal pap smear, they've never had concerns about cervical dysplasia or precancer. You have an HPV negative test in the setting of a normal pap smear, then you're probably very low risk for development of a vaginal or cervical cancer, which is what um, that pap smear is looking for. So a pap smear is a screening test, and as a general population screening test, it's looking for abnormal cells that would potentially be a precursor to cervical cancer. Now, what we know now is that the majority of cervical cancers in the world are caused by HPV. And so if your HPV test is negative, has always been negative, has been negative the last 25 years, then the odds of you developing a cervical or vaginal cancer are extremely small. 
Um, I always caveat that with they're not they're not zero um, because there are cancers that come up that we don't expect um, or that are not HPV related. But your risk is probably very low, and if you but if you wanted to have a screening pap smear, you could still get one. Um, and they really are, you know, sometimes insurance does not cover them for a screening purpose at that point based on age, past history. Um, but they're fairly cost effective, so typically somewhere around eighty five dollars um, for the pap smear itself, and that's to have the pathologist look at it. Um, so it's always an option to have that done. And if if that's important to you or something that you feel like, look, I just would feel better if I have a pap smear, even if you think I'm low risk or I don't really need one. I, w- I have patients like that all the time, even if I tell them, hey, you're good to not have any more pap smears. I think your risk is very low. Well, I just feel better if I get one. Okay. We can certainly do that. And, and you know, sometimes they are paid for. Um, by insurance, but there's a potential that they wouldn't be paid for based on past history of age, that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, and thank you. I think I'm going to ask for one this year because yeah, yeah. I had a friend. I had a friend who died of cervical cancer. At um, she was 62, and I'm just yeah, you know, wow. I just would feel better if I got one. Maybe not every yeah. year, but every three or four years or you know yeah that'd be, so, yeah okay. that's always an option too absolutely i appreciate your time thank you thank yeah. you Ann. Sure thing. have a great day and, and Christy, I think that brings up a great point about sort of, um, you know, when, how often should the average woman be getting a pap smear? What are the, the recommended um, screening guidelines? And then also, um, what is associated? You mentioned HPV um, and, yeah. and the vaccine that is available uh, for HPV. So can you tell us just a little bit about the screening recommendations and guidelines? And then, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a great segue into something we wanted to talk about. So screening guidelines for pap smears start at age 21. So really before age 21, you don't need to have a pap smear. And that's not based on uh, time of sexual activity anymore. It used to be. But really what, you know, and and it's a little bit from a population standpoint, you kind of have to think about we're screening the entire world and we're looking for where are the most where can we make the most impact? And that's right. going to be, can we pick up pre-invasive lesions that are then going to lead to cancer? And so um, we want to find something, we want to find nothing. But if we are screening people, we want to find things that we can intervene on. So right. um, what we found was that people who are young will often be affected by HPV that will never develop into cervical cancer. So um we don't get too worked up about HPV in women who are under the age of 30. Now, I personally do not feel that 30 is old anymore. <laughs> That's right. Um, the further I get clarify. from it, the younger it is. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but 30 is kind of our cutoff. And so what we found is that women who still have HPV after the age of 30 are at a little bit higher risk of having persisted. And so guidelines come from... Uh, doing pap smears uh, under at age 21, under age 30, doing them at somewhere around every three to five years. And that kind of depends on past history. Um, and typically, as long as those are normal, every three years is probably adequate. 
And then after we get um, to age 30, you can actually do a pap smear and an HPV test every five years, as long as those are normal and you don't have um, any past history of having abnormal. One one caveat, I think, to that is Mm -hmm. um, if you have new sexual partners, if you have more than one frequent sexual partner, you have to kind of think about, is my risk of being exposed to a new strain of HPV higher than typical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that vein, you might want to think about, hey, I, I get, I need to get a pap smear every three years, or I don't want to go five years because I had a new partner this year and I potentially was exposed to an HPV virus that I hadn't before. So um, just kind of putting it into context of every patient, but the general guidelines would say every three to five years is adequate. But if we shift kind of into the HPV data mm-hmm. um, or into the HPV zone, so HPV is the human papillomavirus. Um, it affects nearly everyone in the United States. So Men and women, right? Patients. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have had sex in America, you have had HPV. <laughs> so the jig is up. You've had it. It's done. Um But what what we know is that the vast majority of people clear the HPV virus without ever knowing that they have it. Um, So maybe they had it when they were younger. The immune system totally cleared it just like they should. Um, And then then there's no test at all. So we don't test them for HPV, even though we know that they carry the virus, and that's how it spread to women, too. Um, Women are tested for it initially because what we first found was that it um, was significantly associated with cervical cancer rates. And so men can develop issues from HPV. Now, HPV causes everything from nothing to where you never know you have it to genital warts, um, to precancers, to cancers of the vulva, vagina, and cervix. Um, And then in men, they can have genital warts as well. They can also develop penile cancers, um, typically at later ages. And then this is what's so interesting to me is cervical cancer was the leading HPV-related malignancy for 30-plus years. And then around 2010, about the time we got um, some pretty good data for the Gardasil vaccine, the rise in oropharyngeal cancers in men almost doubled and significantly surpassed the rates of cervical cancer in the United States. That's remarkable. And those yeah, those HPV-related cancers or those head and neck cancers are about 99% HPV-related, and that's in men. And so um, that's we've had that data really for about 10, 15 years now, and the vaccine, um, which is called Gardasil, it now covers nine different HPV strains, um, and that's been out. The four-strain version started in 2006, um, and I... You know, vaccines are um, a very touchy, very controversial topic. Um, it's settled down a little bit right now, but certainly <laughs> last year, yeah, um, it was very a lot hard of discussion to talk about and, vaccines. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and what I like to point out about this vaccine is, um, th- so this vaccine was approved in 2006. It went through all the standard long-term data before it was approved. So that means we have. 10 to 15 years of data before 2006 on the safety of this vaccine. And then since it's been given, 
you know, we have millions of women now um, and men now that have been vaccinated with HPV. And so we have all the safety data from them as well, too, um, for the last 20, what is that, 10, 15 years, yeah. 17 years, last 17 years that it's been approved. Um, and what we've seen is in countries that have um, instituted widespread vaccination um, and who have had great uptake of Gardasil is their cervical cancer rate are zero. So, it's amazing. Which is a, yeah, astonishing, astonishing. Um, and with the safety data that we know, get a vaccine that's very safe um, and, and have no rates of cervical cancer in our country. So if we look at that, um, if we look at that data, if we go back and we say, okay, well, when can we impact people the most? So the ideal time is to vaccinate people before they are ever exposed to HPV, mm-hmm. which is why we recommend starting vaccination somewhere around age nine. Nine is when to start talking about it. Um, and then you can be vaccinated all the way up to age 45 now. So uh, those indications changed just a few years ago with the rate of head and neck cancers going up. And so that indication previously was for men and women between nine and age 26 and, and recently has changed up to age 45 so that we get the opportunity to vaccinate people later and potentially prevent some of these head and neck cancers. Um, so, you know, I get asked a whole lot, well, what about your kids? Are you going to vaccinate? Well, first, yeah. I was personally vaccinated um, in 2006 when it was first um, put out. So I got my three doses. Um, and, you know, as far as I know, I've never had an HPV positive test. Nobody told me I did. And I look at my pap smears pretty frequently, so um, negative for that. And then, you know, never had any side effects as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, had normal fertility afterwards. I have three beautiful children. I get, you know, asked about that. Well, what about fertility? I read that cortisol affects fertility. Um, there are rarely reports of autoimmune issues coming out of vaccines. Um, the rates are very, very low. Um, they are less than the rates of cervical cancer. Um, and I personally feel that the benefits of the vaccine are higher than the very small rates of things that have been reported that have not been directly associated um, specifically with the vaccine. But, you know, I won't say yes or no, I think that's that's still potential, but really the benefits of this vaccine mm-hmm. are so much higher. Um, and so my, you know, I have a 10-year-old, a uh, 10-year-old girl, I have a seven-year-old boy, um, and uh, they will be getting vaccinated. Now here in Mississippi, we have um, to get a Tdap vaccine to go to seventh grade. I think that's right. Sixth grade, seventh grade. That We're not there right. yet, so I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but at that point, we will get both vaccines. So um, we will get our Tdap, and we will get the first dose of Gardasil. So before age 15, you can do two doses of Gardasil. Um, after age 15, you do three. And that's just based on immune response. I, um, I think some data is going to come out where we find that um, maybe even just one shot is adequate, but that data is not quite out yet. So um, yes, my, my girls and my boys will both be getting vaccinated. Um, you know, my reason for vaccinating my boy is, A, I don't want him to pass on HPV to another female. Um, mm-hmm. And I certainly, if there's a way that I can prevent him from having a head and neck cancer, yes, I absolutely want to do that. Absolutely. I think it's um, a, a, a great point 
um, that you're making about it. We think of it with cervical cancer, but there's so many other HPV associated cancers that we've learned about over the years and that this is one of those vaccines we have really pretty good data on the efficacy and the safety. So I think Yep. Um, what it's done in some countries is pretty remarkable. But, um, you know, I do think anytime you start talking about future fertility for children, um, I, I think parents Ooh. start to get nervous. And so, oh, yeah. um, you know, I think it's, um, I, I guess, you know, specifically, you mentioned there have been some reports of kind of immune mm-hmm. uh, questionable issues with fertilities from the, the vaccine. Is that specific to the Gardasil vaccine or any vaccine? So it's it's not just specific to Gardasil. Now, I think because Gardasil is the um, before COVID vaccine was approved, um, Gardasil was the last approved um, vaccine for children. And so um, it has been associated with other vaccines as well. But Gardasil probably got more discussion, um, Mm -hmm. especially because there was some controversy about Gardasil initially. And I, I think the focus has changed a little bit now that we know about the head and neck cancers that are associated mm-hmm. with HPV, but it really was talked about in a, oh, well, this is a sex, this is a virus for people who have sex. And it is absolutely hard to think about your nine-year-old being sexually active. That is definitely not where we want to be as a family. And so we have to kind of frame that differently mm-hmm. and think about, you no, know, this is a cancer prevention vaccine. Um, and, the you know, the only way really that people are not going to be exposed is is complete abstinence. And, um, you know, of course, we want to think about our children having children and going forward and having their perfect family and their normal lives and just like we, we would hope for them. So preventing a cancer in that setting, um, I think, is a, is a no-brainer or should be. That's what I would like it to be. Well, and I know that you certainly and I and the ED, too, um, have seen some really aggressive um, metastatic cervical cancers that take the lives of these young, otherwise vibrant women. And it's um, it's just tragic to see. So, um, you know, one one tool that we have for prevention that that's been um, shown to be pretty effective in, in other areas and in our area, too. So, um, so Dr. Haygood, I wanted to talk a little bit. Um, we've had some great discussions about endometrial and cervical cancers and ways um, to potentially prevent and screen for those. Can you tell me a little bit about ovarian cancer and what are some signs of sim- symptoms of ovarian cancer and what women should be on the lookout for? Yeah, absolutely. So, this is a little bit different. So ovary cancer is kind of what we call a silent cancer um, because there are no specific symptoms. There's no specific sign. Um, as opposed to endometrial, which we talked about, you know, most women will have bleeding and they know that's not normal. Um, or a cervical cancer where we have a very good screening test um, mm-hmm. with a pap smear. The two easy things that we can kind of pick up there. Now, Ovary cancer, so most of the patients who are diagnosed afterwards say, well, you know, I did have bloating or I felt a little fullness in my pelvis or I did have a little vague pain. I had some nausea. I had some changes in my bowel habits. I had a little low back pain. You know, nothing really, though, I mean, honestly, all of those things as I'm over 40 now make me, oh, well, right. that's kind of my normal life, right? <laughs> right. So, I think that's what makes it um, so extra scary, one of those cancers that's so scary. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, And I think we've touched on the importance of this a lot here on the show today is being an advocate for yourself mm-hmm. um, and then having a good relationship with a, somebody that you trust, a medical professional that can help you evaluate these things so that when you're in the office and, and you're at your annual exam, because we don't have a good screening test. So we don't have a pap smear that looks for ovary cancer. We don't have just an ultrasound. We can do an ultrasound, but that's not always great um, at picking up ovary cancer. And so um, having somebody that you can talk to when you come in for your annual exam or when you start to notice, hey, that pain that I've had in the bottom of my stomach, I've had that for, you know, a while, and Mm -hmm. that's not really going away or getting better. And I should, and you should know, as women, we should say, hey, that's not normal. You need to get that checked out. Um, and then having somebody to evaluate you. And so having a general practitioner or a physician that you can go talk to um, and, and say, okay, this we're going to do these steps first, and then we're going to get an ultrasound or we're going to get a CT scan. And um, I think important, too, especially now that we know so much about genetic mutations and how much genetic cancers or how genetics play into cancers Mm -hmm. um, is knowing your family history. And so if you have three aunts that had a breast cancer or an ovary cancer, making sure that you tell your doctor that. And every year you update your doctor on your family history. Hey, I did have, you know, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer this year. And so for your doctor to then say, okay, well, how old was she? And wow, okay, well, that you know, we need to talk about some genetic testing because what we found is that about 30% of women who are diagnosed with ovary cancer do have a genetic mutation. And if wow. we are able to do genetic testing earlier, we can prevent a lot of those cancers. So not, you know, never zero, um, but by doing risk-reducing surgery, by for those higher-risk women, they can... Um, but they can be screened with ultrasounds, and sometimes we pick things up sooner before they become a cancer, and we can take them out. So um, I think it's just ovary cancer um, is not easy to screen for, and so it's one of those areas where we as women have to be aware of what is normal for us and then being an advocate when we know that something is different. I think that's a great point that you've made today is making, you know, making note of when something's not normal for your body. And so, you know, is your cycle lasting longer than it did? Um, or is it not coming as often as it used to? Maybe that sign of normal aging, maybe it's not. Um, same thing with this. Are you having some of these vague nonspecific symptoms that um, are, are, are new for you and, and unusual? Um, I think it's important to try to make a note of these things before you go to your doctor. Just keep a note on your phone. Keep a note in your purse or your pocket. Just reminding yourself of, oh, gosh, Aunt. Aunt Annette was diagnosed with something. I need to make sure that I, you know, tell my doctor. And I know there's so many little things that I forget in the moment. Even as a physician, I forget in the moment to tell my doctor during my annual. So making sure that you um, communicate that and that you have a doctor that you feel like is listening to you or a practitioner you feel like is listening to you. And if you don't, go get a second opinion. It never hurts to get a second opinion and try to find a little bit better fit for you and your um, physician-patient relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you made that point earlier that um, 
you know, not everybody fits together the same, and and that's okay. That's okay. Um, I'm not going to be, I I will be the best doctor that I know to be, but if that doesn't work for you, then be honest with me and let's find you somebody that, that takes care of you best, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, lots of takeaway points from from our talk today, from just knowing your body, being ready to communicate that and listening to to your body. Dr. Haygood, thank you so much. Any final parting words you want to have with the with the audience to reminders for for health maintenance? Yes. Number one, please be vaccinated for HPV up to age 45. If you're not vaccinated, get your kids vaccinated. Um, and uh, just, you know, having a good relationship and knowing that every woman needs an annual exam, you need to go in and talk to somebody about your vulva, whether it's burning or not, you should go talk to somebody about your GYN parts. Thank you so much for being here with us today and all the great information that you've given us. Yeah. Um, it's been great to talk to you. Christy and I, were, we're talking about our, our children and our busy maze and our, and our fun careers and patients. So thank you so much, Dr. Haygood. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us today for Southern Remedies Women's Health. This is a production of Mississippi Broadcasting, Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Sarah Sterling. Join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedies Women's Health on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on the